1: Hello and welcome to the shiny new season two of the Art Detective Podcast with me, Dr Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, and I'm your chief investigator of images. You may have joined me during season one in which over 50 episodes we explored Leonardo da Vinci, we explored medieval manuscripts, we explored um, cutting-edge modern sculpture with such incredible guests as Neil Gaiman, Bethany Hughes, Philip Pullman, and all of those shows will be available for you to download again. But we are starting something new with season two, we are trying to give you even more exclusive access to art discoveries, to the real secrets that make art history such a fascinating area of study. So we have got some exciting stuff coming, we have got behind the scenes access to the Staffordshire Hoard at the Birmingham Museum, we have got exclusive interviews with uh tracy chevalier the author of girl with a pearl earring all of that is to come but we've also got something else exciting up our sleeve now we took a little break from art detective had a little look at what works and what doesn't work and one of the things that we realized really can turn people off a podcast is if it's stuffed with ads So you're listening, you're all engrossed in the content and suddenly you're being sold um, beard trimmers. (laughs) Well, we've tried to come up with a solution which will mean you can get all the Art Detective podcasts ad-free, as well as a load of other stuff. I'm constantly going to exciting places, particularly over the next year I'm going to be in Mexico, Germany, France. And whenever I'm in these places, I want to make little videos. I want to share my thoughts. I want to, to give little um, insights that I wasn't really sharing on the original Art Detective, but I can do now that we're thinking of launching a Patreon. You may have heard of Patreon. It's a way of helping those creative people that whose work you enjoy make more of it and make it better for you. If you become a patron of The Art Detective, you can help support us and help us keep making it because the extra financial support you give us means that we can work harder to offer more reveals and improve the quality of each each podcast and broadcast. If you sign up, you can come in at different tiers of support. So you can unlock all sorts of different extras depending on which sort of support you want to offer. You can get video footage, access to pre-sale tickets ad-free shows and even, coming soon my friends, Art Detective merch. You can find out more by going to patreon.com slash art detective. Hope you think it's a good idea. I'd value all your feedback. Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Janina Ramirez to tell me more. Now, today I am going to be talking with Ophelia Field she is the author of the book The Favourite which went on to inspire the play and indeed the film The Favourite that is now scooping all these amazing awards. I spent a whole day filming with Ophelia at World Heritage Site Blenheim Palace the home of Sarah Churchill the subject of her book and you can catch up with my live stream by going to facebook.com forward slash Dr Yanina Ramirez where you'll be able to see all of the wonderful sights that we saw and wander in the footsteps of Sarah Churchill herself. You can also tune into part two, where I'll be speaking to the head archivist at Blenheim Palace. And boy, have we got some exclusive and amazing discoveries. This was hot off the press stuff, people. So please continue to support The Art Detective. I value each and every one of you for your support. And I just want to make this the strongest, free international art history resource in the world thanks everyone I'm so excited. We are in Blenheim Palace, and I'm joined by Ophelia Field, the author of the biography of Sarah Churchill. The favourite is the name of your book, isn't it? Correct. And of course, we're together today because there is a lot of buzz around the film. We're coming up to the Oscars. Will they win Oscars for it? But your book is a really in-depth study, isn't it, of one of those major characters,
2: Sarah Churchill. Now, When did you write it? What was the motivation to write it? The research was done in the late 90s and it came out in 2002 originally. And yeah, I just got obsessed with Sarah. I mean, she's an amazing woman. I didn't know that much about her before I started. I wasn't already, um, before I started the research, I didn't put her on any kind of pedestal or anything. So I grew very fond of her as I worked on her over the years. And yeah, and now it's been brought out again as a revised edition.
1: And the way that Rachel Weisz plays her, she is, I mean, one of my favourite bits is when she's sort of striding around with a gun over her arm. And, and she just seems like this quite cold person, but also quite calculating, quite manipulative. Um, how do you feel about the real Sarah?
2: Well, I mean, I think what the film does deliberately and really well is to take things that were on the inside of people and really put them on the outside where they're visible for cinema and you know so I think the strength of Sarah is sort of made external in Rachel Weisz's performance but actually in that period in the 1700s that strength mostly had to be worn on the inside much more in and in the by which I mean that she couldn't really have marched up to a Tory politician in the royal drawing room and given him a piece of her mind straight (laughs) in his face. I mean, there were things she could do and things she couldn't do as a woman. And, you know, so it's not a realistic portrayal of what kind of a strong woman she was, but she certainly was... Um, I mean, I know Rachel Weiss hates the term strong woman because we don't say that about anything else, but I I think she was an extraordinary woman, that's for sure. Certainly extraordinary, and the
1: more I've looked into her and reading your incredible book and all the documentation that survives around her, she was... We would consider her an extraordinary woman today. Yeah, absolutely. Because of the way that she used what little education she had and uh, her wit and her charm and the real strength of personality to go from quite humble origins to, you know, pretty much one of the most important people in the country.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that people don't realise when they come to visit Blenheim or something, that this is a house that was built and owned by a couple that were basically self-made. I mean, they, yeah. they really, they weren't, you know, they weren't born in poverty, but they were both had relatively humble origins and and built themselves up and founded a dynasty, or several dynasties in fact, um, through their own efforts. It's incredible. And I mean, Blenheim now is remembered as one of the most
1: ultimate, beautiful Baroque palaces in the world but to me it is as grand as the royal Mm palaces and that says something about the Duke of Marlborough Mm -hmm. who we now of course refer to as the Duke of Marlborough but as you say you know in terms of of Sarah and John their relationship where they come from we are obviously in the building that is their their legacy but we're also in the presence of an artwork that depicts the whole family and this is the art (laughs) detective so we should be looking at some art but I mean this is a huge scale canvas isn't it yeah. Um, by the painter Klosterman, and uh, tell
2: me what we're looking at. So this is uh, Sarah's whole family as it was surviving at this point in the 1690s. So I think she was probably prompted to, to capture the family in this way by some recent deaths in her in her own family. So she oh. just lost her two-year-old son, and she'd also her mother had just died. She didn't particularly get on that well with her mother, but nonetheless, I think those those events possibly. Were some kind of maybe subconscious prompt to just you know immortalize her family. Um, because actually, her true. deceased child's in here, isn't he? I think these are the daughters, these are the the daughters, the four daughters, and then her living son oh, Jack and that's Jack, yeah, okay. Um, but she has just lost a little one, yes.
1: Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is again one of the themes that runs through the film, of course. But this, I think the two major things I took away from watching the favorite was the loss of children. Yeah, um, and also the is suggested to be this tripartite lesbian love triangle. You <laughs> yeah. know. Um, oh,
2: you, you noticed that, didn't I,
1: you? <laughs> it was hard to miss. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, these are things that obviously... <laughs> when you're researching historical documents, there isn't, <laughs> there isn't something yeah. explicit
2: no. that says no. Sarah had this lesbian the relationship. The line about being fingered was not in, in yeah. the archive, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think... Yeah, I think going to the first point about the the loss, um, yeah. bereavement. I mean, Anne obviously is the one who is understood in those terms in the film as somebody who's lost 17 children. But I mean, it's, you know, it's, Sarah also had her, her losses, as I yeah. just said. And I think um, what... And, in fact, Jack, who is the older boy who's yeah. over here in this portrait... Who would have been, of course, the heir. The heir to the Marlborough uh, title and everything. He he died very tragically when he's 17 as well. So, basically, I, you know, one thing that was interesting about the women... Um, when I uh, Queen Anne, in contrast to Sarah, is they had very different ways of dealing with grief, mm. and this caused some of their some of their big fights and misunderstandings actually arose because they they dealt with their grief in different ways. Anne was very kind of Christian and stoic um, but also wanted her friends around her Sarah she wasn 't an atheist, but she didn 't really believe in the afterlife enough for it to really comfort her very much I think she she just reacted much more as we would imagine a woman reacting to the death of a child today and let herself uh, wallow in grief for quite a while and she didn't want her friends in particular Queen Anne who she had to obviously was working for she didn't want her around when she was grieving Mm. so that caused a big rift between them but uh, they they just didn't understand how each woman reacted when they were when they were bereaved. And there's a, there's a thing about her mother dying as well,
1: which obviously we're looking at this painting. This is the sort of context. Doesn't Anne actually tell her to... to, to, come, sort of, to be, she wants to be there to grieve with her for her mother, but Sarah's not really that bereft, is she, by her mother's death? Well,
2: no, we imagine not. We don't really know with her mother, but I think, yeah, no, I, she'd had a very difficult relationship with her mother, who seems to have been another quite strong, extraordinary woman, but, but Sarah was keen to get her independence from her mother at a young age and and didn't seem to have that much respect for where yeah. she was at.
1: There's a portrait, actually, in your book that shows her,
2: what is thought to be a depiction of her mother, and I was really struck by it. It's a very unusual picture because it's a picture of an old woman looking old. Yeah, and what's the most? All? Yeah, and yeah. in this period, most women were painted to look infinitely younger than they really were. I actually think in this picture that we're looking at, Sarah does look her age. <laughs> I she's kind of, it's yeah. not a particularly flattering portrait. In fact, out of the two of them, her husband is looking like the, Idealized. the fresh-faced, yeah. handsome one, and she, she's kind of looking a bit um, glum and jowly. But, but in general... You know, women's characters were thought to be directly related to their appearance. Mm. And so, her mother, there were various uh, suggestions about her mother being immoral for various reasons. And so, I think whether that is a picture of her mother or whether it's just been attributed because of that association, we don't know. But, I, you know, it's a bit odd to think whether her mother would have sat for that portrait. So,
1: yeah, because it is
2: very unflattering. Yeah, So, um, so it not it's not quite logical that that would be the case.
1: But Sarah, on the other hand, I mean, there's a number of portraits of Sarah around Blenheim and in other collections as well. But she is at times more jowly. <laughs> Some of the portraits are less flattering. But yeah. she is known to have been a striking woman, isn't she? Yeah, I think,
2: you know she's she's beautiful but more than being beautiful she's also I think what comes across is that she had some kind of really real natural charisma Mm. and that's something that's very hard to capture biographically or from archives or anything but you know people do keep remarking on her as being sort of radiant and and having a kind of um attractiveness that goes beyond just looks and I you know I think that is you know the contrast that unfortunately also didn't cast Anne into the best light because Anne was not an unattractive woman when she was younger but I think you know Sarah was five years older and just much more glamorous and much more you know um yeah she just, had she had that something and I remember reading as well in your book that, that
1: John had it too yeah. that they both had this inexplicable charisma yeah. and potentially that's what sets them apart from their their parents, from the gener- from the people around them in court, who are all jostling for supremacy. They have this, and then they b- put their powers together. Yeah, and they become a power couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the ultimate power couple because we're still stood in their palace. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> But uh, but I think you see that in this as well. And what's interesting about the composition in this painting, um, it's thought that they might have added him in, isn't yeah. it? Because there is a sort of cut. It feels like there's a separation yeah. line there.
2: Yeah. Why would that be? Well. Yeah, I mean, he was, John was often away, mm. I mean, it, and, it, and was throughout also, um, you know, the period of Anne's reign later. I mean, he he was either away soldiering or away in London when she was in the countryside. I mean, he was often just not there. Um, and so whether it was always planned that he was going to be added in or whether it was, you know, they just decided to do it later, I think, whatever the reason, it's kind of, apt that he is sort of to the side and mm. she is the centre of the picture um, you know she is the matriarch that in terms of the family at least is in charge
1: Yeah um, and, and this is something I think is, is wonderful, I mean it's, for me it's a very well composed painting it's got this pyramidal structure that you like to see, very satisfying in a figure group <laughs> um, nice use of sort of background light and then this very beautifully executed velvets and materials I think Jack in particular looks fantastic the treatment of the drapery there's amazing but but what is interesting um is the way she is the sort of the hub but it's a fantasy in many ways isn't it because as her relationship develops with her family she falls out with a lot of people doesn't she
2: yeah so in this picture we have elizabeth mary henrietta and then anne and anne is the only one she really got on with consistently (laughs) henrietta her eldest daughter um i mean they've they really did fall out, and in the end, the, Henrietta had an affair with the playwright uh, William Congreve, which her mother just disapproved of enormously. And you know, they they really never reconciled. Mary, who was said to have a temper and a personality just like her mother's, they also <laughs> fell out repeatedly. But at least they did. Uh, managed to get after, much back and forth. Managed to reconcile before Sarah's death. Mm. Um, and yeah, no. All of the, all of the, she had difficult relationships with all her daughters. She kept in old age uh, a book called the Green Book. Yeah, which this is was is an extraordinary thing. The Green Book, and it's it's horrible read. Isn't it? Yeah, as a mother. Yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, as a mother, it's you know it, she she kept this account. Of Grudges basically <laughs> <laughs> i mean it 's all I uh, head. <laughs> all the reasons they were ungrateful and all the way, and it 's just it 's just you know she Sarah had many virtues and many strengths, but mm. she she did like to control people, and she did feel um, that everything was an account an accounting back mm. and forth and uh, so yeah she she what she could never quite understand in that accounting was the need for just. Um, forgiveness. Forgiveness and warmth. And, yeah. yeah. But having said that, she did also, um, you know, she had, she took over the care of several of her grandchildren at yeah. various points in her life. And she, you know, she stepped in when she felt that other uh, people were being treated very coldly by their mothers. She often stepped in and... and Provided. But that's the problem I find with Sarah. She's she's full of contradictions. I
1: I utterly respect her, and she is what we would think of, I suppose, as a modern woman. Yeah. But she is um, she's reaching these heights of power. Mm-hmm. She's in a man's world completely. I mean, there's no way that she can wield the sorts of power that men can. But her relationship with her husband, and also how she then continues her legacy through her grandchildren, mm-hmm. she's very, very clever, and she has a sense of loyalty and the future, doesn't she? Yeah. So it's sort of it is sort of like two two personalities at times.
2: Yeah. I mean, no, she she definitely had um, a softer and warmer side, which you know. Her husband certainly saw mm. certain other of her close friends, um, Lord Godolphin, who was Queen Anne's treasurer. They, you know, he had immense respect for her. And her male friends um, knew she had this softer side and would often write her letters just saying, you know, it's, it's not what you're saying, it's just kind <laughs> the of way ha- you're saying the way it. you're saying <laughs> it. Could you do, just tone it down a bit? Just be a little. And she never quite got that distinction between. Yeah. You know, as long as the content was right at the point she was making, she didn't, never understood about how to really show that side of herself um, publicly or when or in politics, and yeah. and so it it really, yeah, it was limited to just a few a handful of private
1: relationships. Because her husband even says when it, the one of the things the film charts is a moment a moment where she is falling from grace really, and her relationship with Anne, which has been established for decades, is under true tension which actually ruptures and they do fully fall out and refuse to speak to each other and doesn't Marlborough actually say John say to her you know come on ease up on it stop writing letters stop
2: ranting yeah but you know he had been encouraging he had been using her as a channel to the queen for years and years and years and so the fact that then he when he wanted to put the brakes on there was a bit of hypocrisy there as well and yeah and I mean Sarah has had a very rough deal from historians for many centuries, has also just been blamed for having uh, caused his fall from grace. You know, yeah. you know she's uh, one of the greatest military commanders of Britain and things, and she's basically blamed for their downfall because of her character and the, her temper. And her um, gender. And agenda, <laughs> of course exactly um but really I mean you you only have to be standing in Blenheim and thinking of this place that she essentially had to manage the building of to understand that she you know he never thought she was bringing him down he knew that she was a support absolutely and, and I mean
1: the the wonderful thing is the idea that she conceived of this place on such a grand scale and The reason for it is that John wins this amazing military victory, the battle of, uh, it's not Blenheim, but it's a a town in Germany where the battle took place and they've taken the name over. Um, and, And this is a reward, in many ways, contrived through Anne's reign by Sarah's proximity to the Queen, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that Sarah was a favourite of Anne plays its part. It wasn't purely a reward to him. It was a reward to both of them as as a couple. interesting, right. Because,
1: again, history would tell you, no, it's a reward to him.
2: But that's interesting. Of course, it's a reward to her too. It's a reward to them both. And, and, you know... And Sarah also, people also misunderstand because, you know, he got given the dukedom, but she would only accept the dukedom if he was given a lot of money as well. But that was totally reasonable because you just, in that period, you could not be a duke and not have enough money to support living like a duke. So that was rational. And then, you know, she... She did understand that this had to be a national monument, but she was also, you know, very uncomfortable about the fact that she was also going to be expected to live in a national monument. So yeah. she was quite ambivalent about it. She wasn't grasping for all this. She kind of knew it was serving dual purposes. She um, ends up retiring to like, the lodge in Windsor, doesn't she? Yeah, she's, she, she's uh, head of the Windsor Great Park on top of everything else. Well, by the time Sarah died, she actually had 27 estates. Good so day. this was just one <laughs> of her. She things. was a multi-millionaire of her time, yeah, wasn't yeah, she? No, yeah, she was one of the richest women in europe certainly a non-royal woman absolutely so- what i think we should
1: do is um we should, now we've taken in the big family portrait there is another portrait in blenheim mm-hmm. that is gorgeous that really i think we should look at together because it kind of takes us onto this relationship with women with favorites hold up what was that
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: With Anne, let's head over there. Okay, so we're now in the green drawing room because it's got this beautiful green silk hangings on every wall, beautiful space, surrounded by paintings and portraits. But the one... I know you want to look at *Ophelia*. Is is that one up there? So tell us why this one fascinates you.
2: Well, this is a double portrait of Sarah Churchill playing cards with her great friend Barbara Villiers, Viscountess uh, Fitzharding. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful portrait of two women together, just friends. You know, again, going back to the film, sort of their version of putting just two women centre stage, no one else. Um, and yeah, it's it's an interesting one because they they had a very close friendship. They fell out in the end because Barbara ended up. Uh, well, Sarah thought she was kind of spying on them for King William. Um, uh, and, and Barbara's
1: the one on the left. Yeah, Sarah's on the right. She's got this sort of downcast gaze. She's looking at her cards. There's something very wistful and romantic about it all, isn't it? But yeah. then there's this deep attention and symbolism in it. So you're saying that they fell out?
2: Yeah, I mean. The the portrait's a little bit um, of a mystery because Barbara is holding to clearly turned towards the viewer, the Nine of Diamonds, which is a card that has um, symbolic meaning um, as the Curse of Scotland or or the the, uh, links to Jacobitism. uh, uh, But, you know, she would not have wanted to be advertising being a Jacobite or having Jacobite links at this date. So it's a little bit of a... Yeah, mystery for the art detectives. It's it? a real mystery for the art detectives. And, you know, putting it out there to the listeners,
1: if anybody can decode it a bit better than than we are today. But um, the dating is sort of 1691 we're looking at. Yeah. And that would put it under the reign of of William. of William. And in that case, there's a tension between these two because William, uh, sorry, Barbara supports William and Mary in their reign. Mm-hmm. And Sarah is very much supporting Anne yeah. and what's going to come
2: afterwards. Yeah, so... Sarah was really uh, Princess Anne's advocate during that period in the 1690s and Queen Mary, Anne's sister, really didn't like their relationship, thought, uh, tried to separate them and she tried to um, oust Sarah from court and expel Sarah from court um, and was probably very surprised when Anne's reaction was actually to say, I'm going with her. Exactly, uh, the letter says, doesn't it,
1: you know, um, even if we live in a a single room
2: together, I choose you. A hovel or a cottage, she says, yeah, I would rather... um, Reign Empress of the World with you, then, yeah. So, you know, she, she chooses, chooses Sarah. Sarah. She chooses mm. Sarah. Um, and, you know, from a political point of view, that looked as if she was trying to set up a rival court. But oh. I think really it was just that her relationship with Sarah was such a strong and intense one at that time. She couldn't imagine living without her.
1: And one of the things we do see, of course, coming in through in the film in, in rather a romantic and sentimental way is this idea that when Anne actually comes to the throne, 1702, mm-hmm at that point, she has lost all of her real hopes in her children. Mm -hmm. She has had this relationship going with Sarah, the older friend, five years older, glamorous, graceful. And that's what stayed consistent Mm -hmm. through all these machinations of different rulers, different kings, queens, sisters, brothers. And she's got that as, as her foundation.
2: Yeah, and particularly the period of this portrait. I mean, that was a period of real adversity where mm. they were bonded by that adversity because they felt very persecuted by the court of William and Mary. And they felt that their serv- the household servants were being infiltrated with spies, that they were being snubbed and that they weren't being protected and all sorts of things that they, you know, Sarah was, they, they were in the mindset that they were surviving this difficult time together as um, young married women um, and yeah that really was a foundation that when by the time Anne came to the throne mentioned that she fully trusted Sarah. Was it in, seen as an inappropriate relationship? Well I mean I think you know <sighs> friendships at that time had somewhat different meaning to friendship as we use the word today. They were sort of monogamous exclusive relationships even uh, same-sex friendships so for example Anne was violently jealous of Barbara the other mm. woman in this painting because Sarah liked to spend time with her and found her company I think a little bit more entertaining witty and entertaining than Anne's company. She does complain about
1: Anne as a person doesn't she? <laughs> she does <laughs> later subsequently in her in her, yeah. in her letters and her accounts yeah. of Anne.
2: So you know I think you know when we look at the terms in which Anne expressed her jealousy about that, it, it reads to us as romantic jealousy. I think Anne had a series of very close relationships throughout her life, right from the time she was a young girl with other women. And um, I don't think she believed that was uh, uh, that her own feelings were erotic, but I, I think, you know, it, we also shouldn't discount the strength of those feelings and some, somehow kind of... Um, infantilize them as just, you know, adolescent crushes or anything mm. like that, because they, they they lasted well into adulthood. And the intensity with which she attached herself um, to others, you know, Abigail after Sarah, and then the Duchess of Somerset after Abigail. I mean, it, she had a, a long record of, of these relationships.
1: And... In a way, they're destabilising for the state. You know, the idea that a power play could be existing behind closed doors, and this is the most intimate of relations with the Queen. Um, and then there is also this cloud of doubt, isn't there? Because after Sarah falls from Grace, she does go on... You know, she really goes for Abigail in terms that are suggesting impropriety, in, in aren't they?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, Sarah used um words she talked about anne's inclination for um numbered her own sex and she you know she directly suggests that there are passions between women not fit to be mentioned she mm-hmm. she is aware of the sexual aspect of what she is saying about Anne's relationship with Abigail, then people sort of... Some some of her biographers and things have said, oh, she doesn't seem aware that this might implicate her. But I think she was fully aware. She knew that that's what gave those accusations the power, that she was the person exactly. who knew Anne the best and had been her favourite for so many years. So she would be believed if she her words would seem like more than slander. Exactly. Um and so But it does okay. implicate her because it does suggest that you know I know this because I've been there.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> it so? does. It does. And it I is don't think it's very confusing stuff when you read the documents. I mean there is a sense in which it's sort of almost courtly gossip that we're having to filter through to get to historical facts, isn't it? And that's what you've had to do with the resources, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And you know, I think what's particularly difficult in this period is how intertwined the personal and political are. Mm. So, you know, when she Sarah talks about Anne's infidelity. She's talking about it at a personal level. She's also talking about um, Anne betraying her own country and, and mm-hmm. the national good and things. So these things always... All these words that they used that are slightly sexual also had double meanings that were political and you could bounce back and forth between them all the time. So it is it is very tricky to disentangle, but I, I think what I would insist on is that um, Sarah knew that what she was saying was very scandalous and, and, and yeah. also understood what Sarah was saying as, as implying bisexuality, lesbianism, mm. because, you know, otherwise the, in, the, the back and forth of threats and um, offence and so on just doesn't make sense otherwise. Mm.
1: And, uh, I mean, this is why I think this paintings so so captivating. At uh, the, first, the first time you look at it, you know, it, 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 it's got that 18th century portraiture that... We've come to come very familiar with. We're surrounded by portraits in this style, mm. and it was thought to be by Nella, but it's actually by Jarvis. Jarvis <laughs> takes over as the uh, primary portrait painter mm. for the king and the court uh, at this point, obviously under William. Um, and I think that what you've got is something that is very de- delicate, very. Uh, hyper realistic in the absence of photography mm-hmm. yeah. this is what we have to rely on in terms of likenesses mm-hmm. but what I find striking about this one is it does have this weird suggestive suggestive element about slightly it slightly
2: romantic tilt to it exactly I
1: agree. the way of the shape way of her hair the way yeah. she's looking down not looking out at the viewer yeah. and the fact it's a game yeah
2: what I like about this portrait as well is it's I mean a lot of these pictures As Sarah's celebrity grew, these portraits were copied. They were copied as paintings multiple times, and this one particularly had many copies and also engravings that were made and circulated for people to see who this woman was. Um, One of the later copies of this picture cuts out Barbara and just has Sarah looking down at a letter instead of a handful of cards. And that's, I mean, it's a beautiful painting as well, and it it makes perfect sense as a solo painting. Um, But to me, that's also... Nicely symbolic of the move in Sarah's life. She, you know, she starts off in the court just as a maid of honour, frivolous gambling, all these things. You know, and as she gets older, her immersion in the world of business and literary pursuits as well. She became a writer, basically. Uh, You know, there is something in that move in the copies of the painting that also mirrors the move in her own life.
1: Fabulous. And and as well, I mean, we're talking about the time when ideas and information can be circulated by print relatively rapidly. And people needed to see who these characters were that were being gossiped about. Mm -hmm. They get caricatured as well, don't they? Mm -hmm. Um, And Sarah sort of plays the game a little bit, doesn't she, in terms of her image?
2: Yeah, I mean, Sarah, I haven't ever seen a a really... um, well, the f- very first biography of Sarah that came out in her lifetime in 1710 yeah. did include in the front, frontispiece of sort of a picture of her looking absolutely grotesque with saw dripping sores and everything, yeah. and that gave Sarah the idea that she would also she sort of joked about commissioning caricatures of Abigail as well, oh, and yes, yes. you know, and and getting you know because there was this there was this association between in, internal character and external appearance. So um, yeah, the uh, you know I think Abigail though from from the written records, it's clear that Abigail was far more plain than Sarah, for what it's worth. Um, uh, you know, and I think, um, yeah, Sarah was uh, not above... She wasn't enough of a feminist not to attack other women for how they looked. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you've gone down. in. <laughs> it's, it is all
1: implied. I mean, I think the wonderful thing about your book is there's so much research gone into it and I'm fascinated by the documents, the the information that you've really sieved through to get to the heart of, of the story there. But but there's always going to be unknowns, isn't there? A bit like this painting, there's always going to be little bits, little mysteries that we sort of wonder, why is the, the, the nine of diamonds there? Yeah. And do you feel like that with Sarah still? Do you still feel like oh bits yeah. of how you don't oh, know? Oh, no,
2: I, I don't pretend for a minute that I've I've got everything right or that I've you know found everything there is. To, I mean, Sarah has been... Um, uh, Repeatedly represented and portrayed in books and TV series and paintings and things over, well, ever since she died over 300 years ago, she has been a constant source of people retelling her life and, and representing her according to the uh, spirit of the times. And, you know, the movie is just the latest one of those. And you're right, the spirit of the
1: times. You know, she's a vehicle for whatever period and historian and person wants to take her and turn them into what they think. But I, I think that there's a balance to be found in it. And that's what you strike, that that balance that this is the historical document from the time. These are her words, her letters, her books. And she comes across as, I think she's a fascinating character. I think she's a wonderful, complex woman. Um, and just being able to be in Blenheim, look at the portraits and be with you is a complete honour. Um Your book, how can
2: people get hold of it? It's reprinted, hasn't it? (laughs) This is um, the favourite, Sarah Duchess of Marlborough. Gorgeous cover, look at that.
1: (laughs) Very punk cover.
2: (laughs) This is the true story with a little more emphasis on Sarah. But to be fair, I mean, there are also biographies of Anne, but um, the the one character in the film, I mean, Abigail, uh, you'd be hard pushed to write an entire biography of Abigail because she's just left a lot. Many fewer traces mm-hmm. on the historical record. So well, one of the things we haven't said about
1: Sarah, of course, is she lives to eighty-two. Yeah, she long goes, life means you leave <coughs> more of an impact. Actually,
2: yeah, eighty-four. <laughs> 84 I want to say eighty-four. That's what I it to say is what, yeah, you're yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So she, um, yeah, she has a, a lot of story both before the film and after the film. Her story is pretty incredible as well. I mean, the, the things she achieved in later life, um, you know, because actually. In that uh, period during Anne's reign, I mean, really, Sarah's influence always had to be mediated through her husband or through other men mm-hmm. who actually are you know, not shown in the film. But um, are still the movers yeah. and shakers. Yeah. But, you know, especially after her husband's death, when the Duke of Marlborough died in 1722, then Sarah really was independent in a way mm-hmm. and could act independently. Um, for the first time at that point, so and she
1: has a good twenty years of living
2: independently yeah, creating this place, still involved in politics still yeah, yeah still uh, wielding enormous power
1: yeah. And, and also living a life that is very complex, working out relationships with her children, with her grandchildren, what's going to happen to Blenheim, to the all of her tw- 26 estates, did you say? Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's what I liked, that latter part of
2: her life. I was really fascinated yeah. by that bit, actually. And she was very interested in what posterity would think of her. I mean, she cared mm. deeply about how she would be remembered. So, you know, it's great that more and more people are going to know about her now. And more and more people will know even more If they get your wonderful book,
1: I absolutely (laughs) loved it. I mean, I I couldn't, I couldn't put it down, cover to cover. It's a wonderful, wonderful Lucy Worsley, a tour de force. (laughs) That's an endorsement, Um, Ophelia. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for coming to Blenheim. Thank you for for, uh, sharing just a fraction of your knowledge about Sarah. But hopefully, it will whet people's appetite to come to the palace and see the portraits, but also just to find out more about her. She's fascinating. Thank you.